0: Okay, so we're carrying on with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. Oswald Chambers said, um, If you want to be of use to God, get rightly related to Jesus Christ, and he will make you of, uh, of use unconsciously every minute you live. You know, the Gospel of John is really all about that. It's about our relationship With Jesus Christ. We'll see examples this evening. We saw some last time. Uh, And as we go through the book, we'll see more and more examples of people and how they stood in relation to Jesus. And that's really, for us, one of the the key things of this gospel that it, it really puts a focus on where we stand in relation to Jesus Christ. And that is the bedrock of any fellowship. This is one of the reasons we're starting with this book. You know, we'll see where God takes us from here. But this is such an important foundation, uh, as I said earlier, uh, talking about that situation from Leviticus 10. The, the source of our worship has to be Jesus Christ. And this book is the book, if you like, probably more than, than any other that really hammers the point of who Jesus really is, that he is God manifest in the flesh. Okay, so let's uh, get into the text, into John chapter 3. We read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Well, first day comment about the Pharisees. Uh, Pharisees were a group typically of about 6,000 men. There was never really any more than that. Uh, and they were devoted to the law. They would have to, to swear in the company of, of normally three witnesses um, that they were going to give their lives for, the, for the, uh, the studying of the law. Now, typically we're talking about the first five books of Moses. And they would be looking in all, to all the details and everything else. They were the, the, the religious extremists of their day. They were so uh, intent on understanding and, and obviously therefore teaching the people. Um, uh, incredible bunch, very, very serious bunch uh, of people. Uh, Nicodemus is one of those. We're also told he's a ruler. Um, And from that we understand he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was a group of 70 uh, people that presided over the nation, um, particularly from a spiritual perspective. Um, But Nicodemus then is of this this, uh, caliber. He's a very influential, important person in the life of the nation. But notice what we're told. The same came to Jesus by night. Now, why by night? Possibly because he didn't want to be exposed, didn't want other people to know he was coming. Um, But maybe it was just because it was the best time to catch Jesus alone so he could have these conversations that we're going to see him have. Um, Notice what he says. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. Well, who's the we? Well, clearly those who he's representing. He's coming on behalf of the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. He's saying, we know... That thou art a teacher, come from God. That's an incredible declaration. Particularly in light of what we see later in the Gospels, as we see the Pharisees reject Jesus, want to see him killed, and all these things. At this point, fairly early on in Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus is saying, "We we know that you're a teacher, come from God. Incredible. But, fundamental problem. What's his basis for that statement? He says, we know that thou a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. His basis, and the basis is the fact that you're doing miracles, therefore you must be of God. Well, We need to be extremely careful. We, if we look around the church today, we see all sorts of miracles taking place, and we mustn't base our faith in Jesus Christ on those miracles we see taking place. If we base our faith on anything other than then as we were saying a moment ago about the cross, about the source of our worship, everything else, we find ourselves on very dodgy ground. You see, they believe because of the miracles. They should have believed because of God's word. And as we go on and we'll see, Jesus actually chides Nicodemus because he didn't know the word of God. He should have known. Again, John only records seven miracles in the whole book. And John will focus on the cause, not the effect. So often in the church today, People focus on the effect, and we need to get our eyes off the effect and onto the cause, onto Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. That's the, the, the most insistent way Jesus could get this across. You know, not just, you know, I say unto thee, not just verily, I say unto thee, but verily, verily, I say unto thee. He's like, okay, be quiet, listen, pay attention. And Jesus goes on to make his point. He says that except a man be born again. This is the only way. It's not as if there's, there's multiple choices here. Now he's speaking to Nicodemus. He's saying to this great religious leader, the only way that you can see the kingdom of God is if you're born again. Not your tradition, not all the things that you've done, not all the things that you, you think you know, unless you are born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. It is an extremely narrow way. Jesus later in the Gospel of John will hear him say, "I am the way, the truth, the life." People get offended uh, by this, and you know the fact that, that that Christianity is too exclusive. It's ridiculous. You know, if you had some horrible disease and the, the doctor sat you down. And, and went through all the ways this disease was going to affect you, and how it was going to uh, affect your, your nervous system, and your eyesight, and your muscles, and, and really laid it on thick, and spent 20 minutes going through the horrible symptoms of this disease you have, and then said, but there's a cure. How many of us would go, what, just one? You wouldn't, would you? You would be so pleased there is a cure. The fact is, there is a way. And that is the, the most incredible thing, that we who have rebelled against the Holy God have a way. Let's not worry about you know, why isn't there are more choices. No, there is one way, but praise God, there is a way. See, God is saying to, or Jesus here, is saying to Nicodemus, you know, that your works and your effort are not going to avail here. Nothing else that you've done, all your religious stuff, that's not going to avail anything, except a man be born again. That word born again, uh, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It's uh, anothen, a bit like another in our vocabulary, but anothen. Uh, it has three meanings of what it's translated uh, in the New Testament. Um, it has the, the first meaning is again, a second time. So you must be born a second time. Um, uh, second meaning is that you must begin, or be, begin radically, a new beginning, a new start, something fresh. Uh, the third way it's translated in the New Testament is from above. Now, all of those are applicable in this instance, which is very interesting. Um, And it's specifically a work of God. You see, we must be born a second time. It must be a radically new beginning, and it has to be the work of God. All three uh, ways that verse is translated or the way it's used, all of them apply in this particular case. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is doing what most of us would do. He's kind of ignoring the the spiritual element here and going straight into the natural. Now, in a sense, what he's asking is, how can I go back and start again? You know, for somebody in his position, he'd gone through all of the Jewish ceremonies. He ticked every box on the way. He'd got right to the top. Effectively, Jesus is saying, that's not good enough. You've got to go back and start again. And he's thinking, well, how can I go back? How can I be born again? it doesn't make any sense because again what he's doing is focusing on the natural in first corinthians 2:14 we read but the natural man receives not the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness unto him neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned again jesus answered verily verily i say unto thee uh, we have that again uh, the emphasis being there except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus now elaborates a little. Now notice we have here water and of the Spirit. Two births are mentioned. Now we're going to deal with the Spirit first. We'll come back and talk, talk about the water because there's a, a controversy over what the water is in this context. Uh, so let's just talk about first of all, what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? Well, 1 Corinthians fifteen we're told, In Adam all die. We know from Scripture Genesis two seventeen, Romans six twenty three, wages of sin is death. Uh, Genesis two seventeen is that the day you eat thereof, talking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, um, that you will die. So the punishment for sin was death. Now Adam didn't die physically immediately; his body started to die from that point, but spiritually he died instantly the moment he rebelled against God. You see, in that sense, in the garden, we all died spiritually because we are all the offspring of Adam. So in that sense, we all died spiritually from that point. And unless we are reborn spiritually, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We will remain, effectively, spiritually dead. However, that verse, First Corinthians fifteen twenty two, goes on to say, In Christ shall all be made alive. Now, obviously, that's all those who are willing to accept the offer that God has made, uh, who repent. Uh Hebrews twelve nine tells us that God is the Father of spirits. In first John three nine and first John five eighteen we're told that whatever is born of God does not sin. That's a verse that some people struggle with because we still sin. Well yes we do, but we need to understand that we have this dual nature going on within us once we are born again. Let me try and explain. In Galatians five seventeen, we read there, For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. The Living Bible translates that verse, These two forces within us are constantly fighting each other to win control over us, and our wishes are never free from their pressures. You see, once we are born again, God starts a brand new spiritual life in us. This verse is interesting because we have three entities, if you like, involved. We have the flesh, the spirit, and you. Now we're not talking when we talk about the flesh about the, our, our physical frame. We're talking about the sin nature that's come all the way down from Adam. So we have within us we have the, the flesh, this new spiritual life that is born within us, and then we are in the middle. That's the, the scripture uses the word soul to refer to who we really are. Um, Ecclesiastes talks about the fact that when we die, the spirit will return to God who gave it. You remember on the cross, Jesus yielded up his spirit. Jesus body went into the tomb but his soul we're told went down to hades and there's a whole discussion about the purpose and reason for that which we'll maybe deal with some other time um certainly it wasn't to finish up paying anything it would all been done on the cross um but clearly we are made up of body soul and spirit spiritually we were dead in trespasses and sins but when we are born again that new spiritual life begins within us but the moment that begins Also, this battle begins within us. And you see, the the flesh and the spirit are wanting control of our physical frame. Because it's our physical frame, it's the things we see, the things that we do, the things we hear, that have a profound effect upon our soul. And if we're influenced heavily by the flesh, ultimately, as we we read also in Galatians, if you sow to the flesh, of the flesh you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, of the spirit you'll reap everlasting life. So the real you is our soul okay it resides in a physical frame and that is in itself the battleground in first peter 2:11 peter says dearly beloved i beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul There's this is war going on against the soul we are to according to scripture mortify the deeds of the flesh the things that the, the passions and desires of the flesh uh, we'll again mention this a little bit later um they can never be satisfied. We are to mortify them, put, the, put them to death, as it were. Um, Romans 6.11 tells us, Reckon ourselves as dead. We're to crucify its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24 In contrast, 1 Peter two two tells us, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. You see, this spiritual life needs feeding. There's various ways we can feed our spiritual life. The Word of God, as we read that, that, that verse there from First Peter 2.2. 2, uh, various other scriptures as well. But the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, uh, verses, verses 1 and 2 particularly. Fellowship is another way that we can feed that spiritual life. Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we should fellowship more as we see the day approaching. And boy, do we see the day approaching. Praying is another way that we are feeding that spiritual life. And also communion. I'm talking in terms of um, when we celebrate the act of communion, when we remember uh, the Lord's death. That has a profound effect upon us. You know, it's very, very, very difficult to try and go through a, a time when you're celebrating, where you're, you're having the bread and the wine, in, in a way that you uh, don't stop and think about the reality of what you're actually doing. I believe that's one of the reasons God has told us to, to do It's one of the few things in the church we're instructed to do, to, to continually do. Uh, Jesus said we should do it in remembrance of him. It's a, Spurgeon spoke a great sermon on the fact that it's a shame that Jesus had to say, do this in remembrance. The implication is that we could forget what Christ did, but we need to be continually reminded. But when we're reminded, it has a profound effect on the way we live our lives. So, so we have this dual nature going on within us again, that verse, verily, verily, I say except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, we've just dealt with the Spirit, that we are spiritually reborn. Um, and we'll, we'll deal with this more as we go through this evening. But let's just have a look at the water. What does it mean, that we born of water? Well, some people say that it's referring to the water of baptism, that we have to be baptized and born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. And they make a very good case from Scripture. Others will say that the water is referring to the water of the Word. And that's what's in view here. Others still will say it's the water of natural birth. So we have a a natural birth and spiritual birth. So let's just have have a look at those. One commentator said, John's baptism was a sensation of the nation at this time. Everyone was talking about it. The Pharisees had sent a delegation to John to ask him why he was baptizing. The meaning of John's baptism was the central theological question of the day in which our Lord speaks. What the baptism stands for is what is important. The symbol behind baptism is repentance, an honest admission of need. So, good candidate. We do find in Romans 6, verse 3 and 4, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by, by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So it's a scripture that would seem to argue for that view. Others would say that the water of the word is what's in view here. Uh, This quote from from Chuck Smith, he says, "Uh, there are those who say the water refers to the the word of God. As Peter in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 23, said that we've been begotten unto this living hope through the word of truth. And so we've been born again through the word of God. And Jesus said in John 15, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And so it is being born of the word of God. Again, there's scriptures that will support that position. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, uh, Being born again. This is the verse that was quoted a moment ago. This is from the King James. It says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which lives and abides forever. Now that seems to be a very strong, compelling case to say that the water here is the word of God, because clearly we are born of the word. Another one is uh, we're familiar with, Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify, talking of the bride of Christ, and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. See, the word is linked with water. Uh, John 15.3, the other verse was mentioned, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Uh, this is from John 8 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. Okay, what about the other option then? That this water is referring to natural birth. Again, this is a comment from Chuck Smith. He says, To be born of the water would refer to the natural birth, because in context then, Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so, he's talking about the two births born of the water and born of the Spirit. And that uh, and that the born of the Spirit is referring to the new birth, the spiritual birth that we have, uh, where born of the water would refer to the fleshly birth. So they're the, the three options that are presented very often. There are a couple of others, but they're the, the, the primary ones. Well, again, there seems to be clearly two things. We've identified that. Jesus says we must be born of two things, which are the water and of the Spirit. But I would always encourage you, whenever you come up with a dilemma like this, you're not quite sure, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay? If we start trying to guess because we know that passage there and this passage, you know, let Scripture itself and the context of what's being said be that which guides us in our understanding. And I think it's fairly clear as we read on, because we find Jesus himself says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus himself lists The two births. So it is, if you like, option number three, I believe, that we are to be born, that which is born of the flesh, obviously natural birth is flesh, that which is born of the spirit, the spiritual birth, obviously spirit. So they are the two births, I believe, that Jesus is referring to. We must be born naturally, but then we must be born spiritually if we're to enter the kingdom of God. So one physical, one spiritual. Jesus goes on and says, verse 7, Marvel not. That I said unto thee, you must be born again. You know, it's no surprise. We, we just think about what we've been saying. That we are spiritual beings. Unless we are born spiritually, God is a spirit. And they that worship him, will see this later, must worship him in spirit and in truth. If we are to spend eternity with God, we must be born spiritually. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you know, don't be surprised. Don't marvel. Uh, that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it lists, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh. And whether it goes, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. I love this. John Wesley was actually asked once, why do you so often preach on verse 7, you must be born again? His answer was fantastic, because you must be born again. <laughs> but that's it. You know, and we, how often do we actually use that in conversations with people? But that's it in a nutshell. You, know, you must be born again. If you are not born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then you can get into this discussion about the fact that we are not um, f- just physical beings with just chemicals doing all the thinking for us. You know, We have been created in the image of God, and it's very easy to see. We think non-physical thoughts. So there's quite a lot of the notes uh, about this kind of thing. You know, We are clearly spiritual beings. We dwell in a physical frame. Born of the Spirit. That's how we are to be, you know. Uh, this is interesting here as well, just to confirm what we said a moment ago. Uh, if born of the water referred to something necessary for salvation, like the word of God or whatever else, it will be listed here in the next verse, or verse 8. But it's not. Here Jesus says, so is, it, uh, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He doesn't say, so is everyone that is born of water and the Spirit. Okay, so you see the clear distinction. That which is essential for eternal life is to be born of the Spirit. Obviously, we need to be naturally born and able to get us to that point. Okay. Um, And also, just to mention there about the wind blowing, where it you know, when the Spirit of God uh, dwells within us, when we have been born again spiritually. And it's a mystery. I'm not going to try and explain it to you because I don't understand it. I don't know know how God does it. But I do know that God starts a new spiritual life within us when we uh, we seek Him. Uh, Again, there's some good examples coming up this evening of that. Um, But what we do see, just as the wind, we see the effects. You know, we've all seen people that have come to know the Lord, that have been born again. And you can't tangibly touch or see something going on, but you see the effects in somebody's life. Just as it is when the wind blows, you can see the effects of it. but You can't actually see the wind. You can't touch the wind. You can feel the effects of it. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Oh, Nicodemus, uh, you know, this great leader of Israel asking this question. And Jesus answered and said unto him, "Art thou a master of Israel? And know it's not these things. Literally, you know, uh, are you the master of Israel? The master is the way it's, it is in the Greek. You know, he wasn't just, you know, somebody of quite important. He was one of the, or if like the teacher in Israel. And he didn't get it. Now, why is it that Jesus chides him for this? Simply because he should have known the scriptures. That was his job. That's what he should have done. So many in the, in the church ask questions, you know, I don't understand this. I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. Always comes back to the fact that they've not been reading scripture. You know, if you read scripture, God will speak to us, reveal things to us. In the Old Testament, these are the things Nicodemus should have known. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is talking about doing something that's not physical but spiritual, putting a new life inside. In Ezekiel 36, uh, again we have verse 26, A new heart also will I give you. Notice, God will never repair your heart. We're told in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, incurably wicked. That's the way our heart is. God never repairs our heart. He puts a new heart in us. And we're not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood around the body. We're talking in a spiritual sense. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. Remember last time we were talking about those stone water pots. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Just as we read in First John, that he which is born of God, that which is born of God does not sin. This is what Ezekiel was saying. You know, thousands of years beforehand or all this time beforehand. You know, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Okay, so we carry on, verse 11 of uh, John chapter 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, again, uh, we have it emphasized. We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen. And you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? What's Jesus saying here? Well, look at this. Very I say unto you that we speak, that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. Talking about the disciples? Hardly. See, the disciples had not spoken or known or testified of the new birth. To them, this was all new as well. Now this is talking about the Trinity. This is talking about the Godhead that this has all been revealed in Scripture. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. How would God testify? God has testified through his word. And you receive not our witness, that witness that we've just looked at from those scriptures and there's others in the Old Testament. You see, the new birth is a matter settled in heaven amongst the Godhead. And Jesus says to him, you know, you're struggling. I'm giving you earthly analogies here. I'm talking about birth and things you should understand. You know, When I get on to talk about heavenly things, which he's going to in a moment, how are you going to understand those things? Verse 13, and no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. This probably scrambled Nicodemus's mind as Jesus is saying this to him in front of him. Um, Nicodemus would have been aware Jesus was talking of himself here. no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven... Even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, and yet he's standing in front of him. How? This is the mystery of the Incarnation, that, that, that Jesus took on human flesh uh, and came to dwell among us. Notice also that no man, Jesus is no mere man, he's God in the flesh. No man has ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Jesus is the only one here uh, that qualifies. And then we get on to the heavenly things. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is referring back to Numbers 21. We need to take a quick look. In Numbers 21 we read verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes this light bread. That's the manner, obviously, they're eating. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looked upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now Jesus obviously is referring to this account, and Nicodemus is probably scratching his head thinking, yeah, I've always wondered what that was about. Brass is symbolic of judgment. Brass was the material used for making the things that were used in the tabernacle for burning. It was just... Always uh, associated with judgment. Obviously, serpent, we understand ourselves, is uh, idiomatic of sin. So, what we have here is effectively sin judged and put on a pole. See, what was required to be delivered from the bite of these serpents? What did the people have to do? Just look. Faith in the only remedy that God had prescribed. That was all that was required. They didn't have to do anything else. Just look to this one remedy. That God had prescribed. Going back to that verse again. Even so, we read, must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we see this incredible thing there. That whosoever, this is an open offer to anybody. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, as we go on, we realize that we have all been bitten by sin. We were all as dead. Only by faith in the one remedy God pres- by, that God prescribed can we be saved. And of course, each person has to look to the cross themselves. You can't. There's no good people in Israel in their tents saying, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm laying here with this, this bite. Can somebody just look out the door and look at that serpent for me? No, no, you had to do it yourself. It was an individual thing. And so it is with salvation. We all you have to do to be saved is look to the one sacrifice, the one offering that Jesus made in, or that God made in our place, that of his own son. And again, this is open to whosoever. And then we go on. The most probably most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. But have as everlasting life for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved you know there 's seven miracles I mentioned in the Gospel of john there 's actually more, and the, 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 the other miracles are the most incredible ones because they are the lives changed they 're the lives set free from slavery and sin, and they 're the ones that so often we overlook. People often talk about miracles. The greatest miracle is that new life beginning in us, we who were dead in trespasses and sins. But this verse, John three sixteen, for God, the greatest being, so the greatest degree. Loved, the greatest affection, the world. That's the greatest object of love. That he gave, which is the greatest act, his only, the greatest treasure, begotten, the greatest relationship. Son, the greatest gift. That whosoever, the greatest company, believeth with the greatest trust. In him, the greatest object of our faith. Should not perish, the greatest deliverance. But have the greatest assurance. Everlasting, the greatest promise, life. The greatest blessing. Incredible, absolutely incredible. Verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what God desired. You know, hell was made for the devil and his angels. It was never intended as a destiny for mankind. Verse 18, he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see again, no one has to go to hell it 's a choice that people make. You know individuals condemn themselves by rejecting Christ in favor of their pleasure. You know people love sin for the season, as it were Romans six sixteen is an interesting verse. it says, "Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are." To whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You know, this is simply saying, Paul's saying here, you've got a choice. You can either obey God or you're going to obey the flesh. But you're going to be, a, in a sense, a slave to either one. You're going to be a servant of that whichever one you choose. But the difference is if you choose to obey the Lord, it will be to righteousness and to life. If you choose to obey your flesh you and go the way that you naturally would go, it will lead to death. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought, wrought in God. Jim Elliot, um, some of you may have um, heard of Jim Elliot. He was uh, one of the missionaries that went to the Orca Indians. Um, He's simply this great, great phrase. He said, a man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus basically said the same kind of thing. He said in Mark eight thirty five, "For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul?" Carrying on, verse twenty two. After these things, meta there. Uh, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. We're later told that it was actually John, it was the disciples that did the baptizing, not Jesus himself. But verse 23, and John also was baptizing uh, in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. uh, And they came and were baptized. You know, John doesn't miss an opportunity. We're told in verse 24, for he was not yet cast into prison. It's interesting, a couple of things here. Jesus leaves, if you like, the bright lights of the city. He'd been in Jerusalem. That's where Nicodemus had come to see him you know he could have stayed there he could have thrived on this opportunity that one of the great leaders of israel were coming to to talk to him and ask him questions jesus could have made a big thing of this but he leads if you like this this position he could have attained to and he goes as we're going to see to the lowest place to reach to an outcast just as he's done with us another interesting point here john was baptizing And we're told uh, in uh, uh, Anon near Salem, because there was much water there. I don't offend anybody, but you don't need much water if you're going to be doing sprinkling. I'll leave you to to think that through. John's time was almost up, yet he didn't give up. I think that's really, really significant. John was carrying on. He could have just said, well, you know, Jesus come now, I might as well, you know, retire. Uh, No, he carried on. Verse 25, then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. The Jews had these various things we read about, particularly in the book of Leviticus, uh, ceremonial cleansings and everything else. Uh, They have their their mikvah, which is their ceremonial bath, and these kind of things. Um, But it's all about purifying the flesh. And obviously what was going on here, they're they're saying to John and his disciples, well, this is what you're doing. And they're saying, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. Uh, You see, John was baptizing for an uh, internal cleansing not merely an outward washing. John was talking about repentance changing. Verse 26, and they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Obviously, they're just trying to stir things up to their own ends. You know, is that kind of do you know what so-and-so is doing? Yeah, they're all going to see. John's response is great. They were just trying to cause divisions for their own ends. But John comes back and says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. First, he's saying, look, you know, I do what I do because that's what God has given me to do. You know, John had received um, his, his message from heaven. Jesus had come from heaven with a message. There's a big difference. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that, and that, that I am sent before him. We saw that last week in chapter 1. John was saying, look, I'm not the Christ. I'm just come to prepare the way. Verse 29. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So I'm saying, look, I'm just like the best man here. You know, it it would be inappropriate if the bride at the wedding is looking at the best man going, oh, that doesn't happen. you know. And John's simply saying, no, the, the bride should be going to the, bri- to the bridegroom. That's the way it works. John is saying, this is my joy. This is the accomplishment of my mission to point people to Jesus. I'm glad they're going. No doubt the Pharisees had wished they'd not started this conversation. John then says this incredible verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. Oswald Chambers says, if you become a necessity to a soul... You are out of God's order. As a worker, your great responsibility is to be a friend of the bridegroom. When once you see a soul in sight of the claims of of Jesus Christ, you know that your influence has been in the right direction. And instead of putting out a hand to prevent the throws, pray that they grow ten times stronger until there is no power on earth or in hell that can hold that soul away from Jesus Christ. Over and over again, we become amateur providences. We come in and prevent God and say, this and that must not be. Instead of proving friends of the bridegroom, we put our sympathy in the way and the soul will one day say, that one was a thief, he stole my affections from Jesus and I lost my vision of him. Beware of rejoicing with the soul in the wrong thing, but see that you do rejoice in the right thing. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is spoken with joy and not with sadness. At last they are to see the bridegroom. And John says this is his joy. It is the absolute effacement of the worker. He is never thought of again. You know, we all are involved in other people's lives in terms of witnessing to them, if they're believers, encouraging them. It's very easy to want to maintain that relationship and keep people coming back to us. You know, we should be just getting people to point to Jesus you know he's the one that is going to provide that will teach them that will be everything they need you know and sometimes we want a little bit of that limelight too no no we're not to stand in the way this verse is interesting because there's three levels if you like that it applies to the local level obviously john knew his remit he knew that he was simply there to point people to jesus he must increase but i must decrease there's a general application of this that none of us should be uh, promoting ourselves You know, we should all be seeking to promote Jesus. I'm always a little sceptical when you come across a ministry that is based upon the name of the person. You know, because to me, that's kind of promoting themselves a little bit. I also find it very interesting that most of the ministries I like, not through choice, not because of this, but all have another name for their ministry. They don't promote themselves. But there's a, a personal application to this as well. And it's the issue of the two thrones, as I've often said. You know we've got the throne of david and the throne of your life if you understand those you'll understand pretty much everything about life if you understand the throne of david and what that means and the implications you'll understand what's going on in the world it really is the key to understanding what's going on and the throne of your life you know all the tru- all the struggles the difficulties we go through it's all about the throne of our life you know and that's where we must decrease And we must surrender and let Christ sit on the throne of our hearts. He must be the one that's ruling our lives. If that's the way it is, then that's great. But for most of us, we still struggle. We still find things that we would rather do our way. And God sometimes needs to work with us and uh, chip away until we get to that point that we yield to him. Verse 31. He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. that he cometh from heaven so he that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receives his testimony. He that receives his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaking the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, the Father loveth the Son, and given, has given all things into his hand. There's kind of a fivefold declaration in those verses that John gives us, gives us if you know, like five reasons of Christ's superiority and deity. Christ obviously had a heavenly origin from verse thirty one. Christ knew what was true by first hand experience, verse thirty two. Christ's testimony always agreed with God, verse thirty three. Christ experienced the Holy Spirit in an unlimited manner, verse 34. Again, I don't believe any human can can truly experience uh, the Holy Spirit in an unlimited manner in that that way, the way that Christ did. And Christ was supreme because the Father sovereignly had granted that status to him. All things have been put in his hand. John is giving this, this rebuttal, if you like, to these Pharisees that have come to speak to him. He carries on, he that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, this is the most important issue. If we accept Christ, we'll have everlasting life. If we reject Christ, the wrath of God will abide on us. You know, we need more honesty in our preaching. How many of us have been guilty of that unbiblical phrase that we so often use? Oh, you have a God-shaped hold in your heart. God loves you. How many times have you said to an unrepentant sinner that God loves you? It's not biblical. We're told that for those that are unrepentant in their sin, the wrath of God abides on them. You know, there's a lot of people that are perishing. Or sorry, should I say, the Bible puts into two categories the people uh, on earth. We have the saved and the perishing. And too many of the perishing are perishing because they don't know they're perishing. And we go around telling them, oh, but God loves you. What message does that convey? That says, well, God loves you. You're okay doing what you're doing. It's not a problem because God loves you anyway. We need to be telling people, no, the wrath of God abides on you. One day you will stand before the judgment throne of God and you will have to answer for every thought, word, and deed. And unless you've got somebody to stand there and answer for you as a, 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 a kind of heavenly counsel by, through Jesus, you will have to pay for your own sin. You know, and if we go around telling people that, you know, well, you know, God loves you, it's okay. No, 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 it's not. We need to let people know that the wrath of God abides on them. Yes, the offer has gone out to whosoever. Carry on. We're into chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus Himself baptized not, but His disciples, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Jesus seems to just avoid this issue, avoid the trouble, just moves on. And we're told He must needs go through Samaria. That's an incredible statement. This is a deliberate choice on Jesus' part. Let's just read the rest of that verse. Then cometh He to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of the ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, just looking on a map, uh, we have here Jerusalem. Jesus has been Jerusalem. He's come down somewhere around this region, not quite sure uh, where it was, but uh, Anon, and then ends up here in Sychar. Now, we'll talk a minute about the Samaritans, but typically what the Jews would do, if they had to go up to, to the Galilee region, which is where Jesus is ultimately heading now, they would cross over the Jordan River, and they've got this side of the Jordan River, and then cross back over if they needed to come back over to this side. They would not pass through Samaria. They did not want to get the dust of Samaria onto their feet uh, we have the parable where Jesus himself talks about the, the good Samaritan uh, why was his hatred there? well let's just have a quick look before we do uh, Jesus leaves the glory of Jerusalem he goes to the despised to these, these Samaritans not only that he goes to a woman who in that culture was least esteemed and then he goes not only to a woman but to somebody who's an outcast among the people so he's going to the the least regarded person amongst a despised group of people, and offers living water. You see, that's you and I. We are in that position. You know, we were strangers and aliens. We were afar off. We're told in scripture. Let's answer this question then: Why were Samaritans so despised by the Jews? Well, we need to go to two Kings seventeen. A little bit of history in the Old Testament. Verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel. And this is after the division of the kingdoms. uh, It's a northern part of uh, the the land geographically now. uh, And we're told that the Lord removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. So Judah remained in the southern portion of the land. But Israel as a nation is taken captive by the king of Assyria. Verse 23 goes on and says, As he said, By all his servants the prophets. So this has been prophesied. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day, at the time of writing unto that day. Verse 24, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from uh, Kathath and from Ava, and from Hamath and from uh, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. So these deportees now are are being brought into the land of Israel and they're being left there and dwelt in the cities thereof. Verse 25, and so it was at the beginning of their dwelling uh, there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore, remember whose land it is. It's God's land. It's not Israel's land. It's God's land. It always has been. Uh, God just has granted it to them, but it's still God's land. Uh, So these people are now in God's land. And then we're told at the beginning of their dwelling there, they feared not the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Wherefore they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, Help, probably. The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the god of the land. Therefore he sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the god of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests, whom you have brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the god of the land." Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord, howbeit every nation uh, made gods of their own. Verse 33 carries on. They feared the Lord uh, and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. So we have this mixture, these people, these deportees brought in. The, the lion's there and they have this real problem. So they get a priest of Israel to go back to them. This is one of the ones that hadn't been obeying God, Funny enough. They send him back to teach people in the land about the Lord the, the Lord of the land, the God of Israel. And obviously they get then the Jewish background and the Jewish uh, practices, etc. But they then intermingle this with their own culture. And so we end up with this kind of hybrid religion, part paganism uh, as well. So this is why the Jews disliked the Samaritans. They, weren't, they, they'd kind of, they were effectively Gentiles that had kind of a Jewish um, upbringing to a point. But this is why the Jews hated them. Verse 6, then, back in John chapter 4. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So it was about midday. Uh, Then we're told verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Well, in that culture, if you were going to draw water, what time would you draw your water? Early in the morning. Because the sun's not up, it's not hot. The fact that this woman is coming here is interesting because there was a well actually in the town itself. She's coming out of the town at midday. So we can be pretty sure this woman was an outcast, not socially acceptable. They come with the woman of Samaria to draw uh, water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Notice here that Jesus was weary with his journey. You know, we're told that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us because he was in all points tempted, yet without sin, we're told in the book of Hebrews. And Jesus here, we're told, is weary. I think it's incredible that we've seen this transition. Jesus come down from, if you like, the bright lights of the city, come down to the lowest of the low. And we find that he's physically wearied here. It's just incredible when we see the parallel with with our own lives as well. Jesus said unto her, give me to drink. Uh, She must have been stunned. For a start, this is a man speaking to her uh, in this this situation. A rabbi, obviously. um, And he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. This was not what was done. But it's interesting, Jesus asks each of us to do things for him. But it's not because he needs our help. Okay? You see, it's incredible the Lord chooses to use us. But the reason he does it is because he wants to bless us in the process. And that's what he wanted to do with this woman here. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That last bit John adds for us in case we weren't sure. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God... And who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Living water in that culture would have typically been something that would have been bubbling up a fresh stream or something like that. And she's there at this well. Um, But Jesus sees here this woman's thirst. Now this speaks, uh, thirst can be in all sorts of things, for all sorts of things in our own lives. You know, she has sought satisfaction to no avail. We, we probably know the story of this woman and her, her, her checkered past with the number of husbands she'd had and the fact that effectively she's living uh, out, of marriage, out of wedlock uh, with a man at the moment. You know, This woman has tried to satisfy thirst in her own life and nothing has done that. You know, and she's now traveling out this world daily and going back again and all these things. And Jesus offers something to her now that is naturally unobtainable. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? You see, she's doing what Nicodemus had done. She's looking at the natural, not the spiritual. Jesus asked for a drink and then said to him, I can give you living water. And she's just looking at the natural, saying, well, how can you do that? You, You know, you haven't got anything you could draw with. And then she says, art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? It's interesting, you know. She, they had this kind of part Jewish history. They would accepted part of the the, the the Jewish history. They accepted that a lot of the, the the historical books. They rejected, but the Torah uh, generally they accepted. And she she talks to Jesus now about Jacob. You know, art thou greater than our father Jacob? You know, Jesus could have said, "Well, actually, I, I wrestled with him once and won." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You see, like Nicodemus, she only sees the natural. And you know, this question here to me is just, you know, just who does this Jew think he is coming here and talking about living water? I know our tradition. It says nothing of living water. What can you give me that my tradition can't? I think that's in a sense what she's saying. That, you know, they've got, she's got a tradition. She's got everything else, but she can't see beyond that at the moment. A lot of people like that in the church today. Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. See, that which is natural can never quench our thirst. You know, we are, as I said earlier, spiritual beings temporarily residing in a physical frame. This is a, a quote from Dave Hunt. I think this is really, really uh, an eye-opener. Let me just read it. Uh, this is partway through a, a, an interview. He said, why do I introduce water into this discussion? I do so because water is so often used by Christ to illustrate the spiritual truths we are considering. Thirst is an important ingredient of hell. Is it a physical thirst for physical water or something even more painful and specifically related to the spiritual thirst to which Christ so often referred, and which he claimed to quench for those who would believe on him. The rich man in hell was tormented in this flame, we're told. He begged Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and call my tongue. That's from Luke 16. David asked the question, Were the flames in hell and the thirst that tormented the rich man real? Certainly. But were they physical? How could that be the case? Only the rich man's soul was in hell. His dead body was in the grave. He had no tongue in hell. Could physical flames affect the soul and spirit? And could soul and spirit have physical thirst? Did the rich man in hell need physical water? It would have, done his soul, uh, not, it would have not done his soul any good. The unbearable thirst that tormented him was because at the heart of all his sin was his rejection of the water of life that Christ offered. He would suffer eternally from the painful guilt of that rejection and the weight of his sins. Oh, That's incredible. It's a real insight. You know, people joke about hell and people, you know, often non-Christians will say, oh, I'm going to you know, be there with my friends, we're going to have a party, it'll be great. You know, they don't understand what it will be like to have this continual, th- I mean, people in the world have a thirst for whatever it is, be it, Sex or drugs or money or, or whatever it is that they're thirsting for. But those things will never be satisfied. The more you throw at it, the more you want to throw at it. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy that thirst. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. You know, she still doesn't quite get it because she's thinking, wow, if I don't have to come out here every day, that'd be great. You know, we often look for things from the Lord to satisfy our immediate situation. You know, in the light of it, when this comes to the, the conclusion in a moment, this woman is not interested about this trip she's got to make. She's got something far better. Jesus said unto her, go and call thy husband and come hither. Now, Jesus is really kind of turning. He started in the natural, talking about water. He's going on now and bringing in this whole spiritual angle and, and quoting from the Ten Commandments, effectively, as you're going to see. Jesus said unto her, go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Well, that was kind of partially true. We often do that. You know, you can go through Scripture and you'll find loads of examples of people that kind of kind of half-truths to, to the God, you know, to to, Abel, where, uh, to, to Cain. Where's your brother? Oh, I don't know. Yes, you do. You know, all these things through Scripture. You know, if God knows the end from the beginning, he knows everything about us, we might as well just tell him straight up. But she says, you know, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her. Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now has is not thy husband. In that thou said truly. Wow. You know, Jesus has a way of dealing with those issues in our lives that we would rather not have dealt with and getting us right where we are. And again, Jesus brings conviction here by use of the law. Carry on. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then changing the conversation, she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Obviously, we're not going to talk about that. I'd rather move on from that subject. Um, uh, So, you know, identifying that this man, obviously, Jesus obviously knows things about her that nobody else seems to have known. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. Uh, Sorry, when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the father. You know, she's. I think it probably is just an attempt to change the conversation. And she she deals with this big theological issue of the day. Where should we worship? And Jesus is saying there's going to be a time coming. Neither of those places are going to be important. You worship, you know not what. Talking to her as a Samaritan. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. A lot of people struggle with this in the church today. But the bottom line is we have a Jewish Bible. We have a Jewish Messiah. We have Jewish Apostles. We have a millennial reign from Jerusalem, can't get away from it, with a Jewish king. In Romans 3, 1 and 2, Paul just says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Jerusalem, Israel were the nation that God had chosen, through whom the Messiah would come, through whom his word would be given to mankind. You know, and At the end of the day, whether you like it or not, Jesus here says, Salvation is is of the Jews. Then goes on and says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. You know, all of our religious practices, you know, this is a in the notes I quoted from um, from the book of Hebrews, uh, which talks about the worship they had, which was never, ever going to do the job. It would never um, satisfy. It would never cleanse away the internal parts. It may do a, a, a superficial thing. Um, but the worship that the Father seeks seeking it is a true worship. And only when we are born of the Spirit can we worship God in spirit and in truth. Anybody that's not born again cannot worship God because the only way we can worship God is the Spirit is if we ourselves have been born again spiritually. The woman said unto him, I know that Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. In a sense, what she's saying is, he will tell us where we're going to worship and everything else. That's the issue she's concerned about. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am. He's in italics there because it's inserted in the text of readability. See, she's basically saying the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to settle these disputes, etc. But Jesus says, I am. He's claiming to be the Messiah again, claiming to be the voice of the burning bush. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? I guess by this time the disciples are realizing that, you know, if Jesus is doing something, we're waiting to see what he's going to do. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? I think this is incredible. A few minutes ago, she was a little bit shocked because somebody had brought up the issues of her past. Now she's running back into the city saying, Come and see the man which told me all the things I've ever done. A minute ago, she was ashamed and embarrassed by that past. Now, that has been turned completely around. You see, this is something i just taken from the notes. We got. At the beginning of their meeting, this woman would have been horrified that somebody should expose her past life, but Jesus did not condemn her. He simply allowed her to see her own emptiness and longing to be satisfied. He exposed her thirst for natural things, which really, from her point of view, was an attempt to deal with her greater need, her spiritual thirst. He then revealed himself as the Messiah, the only one that could satisfy that thirst. You know, God does that in life. He turns our tragedies into his triumphs. We can turn back, we can say to people, that's what I used to be like. But look what God has done. And we bring glory to God. Ray Comfort um, has a ministry called The Way of the Master. Uh, He makes this comment. The president in scripture is given in John 4 for personal witness. If you want to witness to people, this is the president. He says, you can see Jesus' example with the woman at the well. He started in the natural realm, swung to the spiritual, brought conviction using the seventh commandment, and then revealed himself as the Messiah. So when I meet somebody, I talk about the weather, I'll talk about sport, let them feel a bit of sanity, get to know them, maybe a joke here and there, and then deliberately swing from the natural to the spiritual. Oh, it's a great way of witnessing. You know, if you're not familiar with Ray Comfort's Ministry, I'd really encourage you to, to get yourself some of the resources if you need, need information. I know Jill's uh, Mike are very aware. I'll have a word with myself. Um, but it's a great uh, way of using the Word of God. We're told in Psalm 19 that the law of the law is perfect, converting the soul. What is it that converts the soul? The law of the Lord, you know. And if we use the law in talking to other people, it's a great way. You know, people know about the Ten Commandments. You can always say, "Do you think you've kept them?" Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've not killed anybody normally. If they say they have, you might want to move on to the next person. But then you can just ask them, you know, have, have you ever lied? And people say, "Well, yeah." So what does it make you? And they go, I'm "A liar." So well, have you ever stolen anything? Well, yeah, a long time ago. Well, time doesn't make any difference. If you've stolen something, even if it was something very, very small, paperclip from work, whatever, makes you a thief. You know? Have you ever looked lustfully at somebody? And most people will say, well, you know, yeah, but it's not, you know there's nothing wrong with it. But you know? well, Jesus says, because Jesus, God's standards are so high that even looking with lust in God's book is the same as committing adultery. And then you say, you know, if you've murdered somebody and hoped sin, they'll say no, well, God's standards are so high that even if you've hated somebody in your heart, it's as if you've committed murder. And then you could just go through it. Yeah, okay, by your own admission, you're lying, thieving, adulterous, murder at heart. Now, if God judges you by that standard, it's, and they say, well, I don't believe in heaven and all that. So, well, forget it, just, 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 just bear with me. Just if there's a heaven and a hell, if God judges you by that standard on Judgment Day, would you be innocent or guilty? Oh, I'd probably be innocent. And those, you, you ask, them, why? Why? Well, because I'm a good person. He so, said, Well, we've just gone through it. Do you think, you know, what, what, and, and people use this kind of, this kind of good deed, bad deed thing, as if a, a bad deed uh, is committed, and then we do a good deed, so it kind of like cancels itself out. It's like you're standing in front of a, a judge, and the judge says to yeah, you, Well, I'm sorry, but you're here, you know, for violating a, a traffic offence, and you, you, you knocked down a, an old lady and you killed them. So, yeah, but last week I helped somebody across the road. The judge's not going to say, Well, okay, that's okay, then you can go. No, no, th- there's a standard of justice, and God's justice is such that if we've broken his laws, we will have to answer for it. And, and you, know, you bring people to that point where you realize we're not a good person. But you need to let people see that the wrath of God abides on them. Because if they understand the reality that if they are to stand before God, as they are without a Savior, they have no option but to be separated from God from eternity. Again, um, I really commend to you Ray Comfort's ministry and the work that he does. Let's carry on. Verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples, one to another, has any man brought him all to eat? Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Matthew 4.4 we read, but he... Uh, Answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So often we think in a natural sense, we don't think in a spiritual uh, sense. Uh, Again, um, just picking up here. Jesus says to them, say not ye that there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. You know, as Jesus is saying this, I'm sure that in the distance, this crowd is coming out of the village now uh, to see him. That The, the, the woman's gone back, she's testified, and they're coming out to see him. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, Look, lift up your eyes, look and see the harvest. Don't, don't worry about the fact that the harvest shouldn't be for another few months so I can sit down and wait for a bit. No, now is the time. And he that reapeth receives wages and gathers fruit unto eternal life, that both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you are entered into their labors. You know, I believe Jesus there is referring to the apostles, or sorry, the the prophets um, throughout the Old Testament that have prepared the soil of people's hearts, that have laid down. You didn't have to tell anybody in Israel about God. Even the Samaritans, they knew about God. The, the, the laboring, the, the seeds had been sowed, they just had to go and reap. We carry on. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that I ever did. Wow. Personal testimony is such a powerful thing. People can't refute it. They may not agree with it, but they cannot refute it. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. Again, yeah, the power of personal testimony. And it's interesting that what this one woman accomplished in one afternoon was greater than all the disciples had done, just simply through that testimony. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, look, the harvest is ready. And we are the disciples. You know, it's our job to go out and speak to people. It's interesting as well that they wanted to spend time with Jesus. Uh, do we speak, seek to spend time with Jesus? They had two days with him. We have every moment of every day, if we so choose. Matthew six thirty one to 33, we just read, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We carry on, verse 41. And many more believe because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. It's interesting that the the Jews were looking for the miracles. These people hear his word and they believe. Now, after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, just to kind of qualify there, uh, most of the commentaries seem to be of the opinion that he's specifically referring to Nazareth. Although he's going into Galilee, and Nazareth is part, it's Nazareth in the other Gospels that we're told is where he had no honor. It was his own town. Uh, I believe that Psalm sixty-nine gives a very interesting insight into the childhood years of Jesus uh, and the the persecution that he received. Um, Then, when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. But if you remember from last time, Jesus had said in regard to these people that he knew what was in man. You know, they were just interested in the miracles, in the fun stuff, in the entertainment, if you like. And people will always gladly receive entertainment. You know, it's the same in churches today. You know, you put on some kind of event uh, that's, that's uh, a social thing, people will turn up. You say, right, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Like, oh, well, actually, uh, you know, and people have got their excuses, their reasons why they can't be involved. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. It's interesting that John makes mention of this. And then we're told, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, let's just a brief uh, trip here. We've come from Jerusalem up to uh, Anon, and then up to Sychar. Incidentally, Sychar means purchased. And this woman effectively was purchased. There's a beautiful picture. Then we go up to Cana, uh, effectively bypassing Nazareth, although would have been some on the route. Um, I couldn't get a bendy line, so I just do a straight one. But that, that's effectively where, where Jesus ends up. And then we have, over here, Capernaum. It's about a 20-mile or so trick between the two. Verse 47, when he heard, this nobleman, that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now this nobleman would have been a Gentile, possibly of Herod's family, because very often they appointed people of their own families uh, in those days to to take on responsible positions. Um, So he's no doubt heard from the Jews, oh, there's this person that can do all these wonderful things and heal people, etc. And he's probably come to the end of his own trying, natural resolutions to his problem so he now comes to seek jesus jesus said to him except well jesus said uh, jesus said unto him yeah except you see signs and wonders you will not believe now i don't believe that specifically just that man that was to those that were gathered around as jesus speaks to him other people are hearing it you know all you're interested in is this entertainment this miraculous thing just a couple of comments it's interesting this man's son is about to die And God sometimes will allow something dear to us to die in order that we may seek him. And notice where he comes to seek him. He comes to seek him in the place where those stone, empty water pots were transformed into something that bears life. And that's where we need to go to seek Jesus. And God sometimes has to allow things in our life that are dear to us to die or come close to dying so that we go to seek him at that place. The whole signs and wonders thing, you know, no change in two thousand years. I was um, talking to somebody recently, um, and I, I just simply said to them, "Have you had a, a good weekend?" And the reply was, "Yeah, oh yeah, it was. It was. This is a Christian." I said, uh, "Yeah, it was a fantastic weekend." You said, "Yeah, the Holy Spirit was working in an incredibly powerful way." Now I knew what they meant. They meant that there'd been people falling over, that had been. Various signs and wonders and miracles all taking place. That was taken by this person, who's very sincere, no doubt, as evidence the Holy Spirit was working. If you look in Scripture, you'll find in John 16, elsewhere, the Holy Spirit came to bring conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit came to teach the Word, to be our teacher. You know, very often churches that don't have all this paraphernalia, all these people falling over, all the rest of it, Barking like dogs and chickens and all those kind of things they 're often considered churches that are dead the where the spirit is not moving and back in deal we 've been accused of that you know oh you know the, the, the spirits can 't move in your church you know, you know you, 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 all you do is teach the Word of God. you know when the Holy Spirit is present, there should be conviction of sin, and the Word of God will be being taught. That is when the Holy Spirit is working in power. Forget all the other stuff. Jesus here says to these people you know. Forget the signs and wonders. They are the the, the fruit, if you like, not the root. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down before my child die. Again, he's kind of moving on from what Jesus is saying. His main concern is his child. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Wow. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. This is really interesting. Verse 51 we're told. And as he was uh, now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour where he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour. One o'clock in the afternoon. lived 20 miles away. His son was dying. Jesus says he's healed. He doesn't even bother to make the journey home. He's so confident in the word that Jesus has spoken, this faith is incredible. He doesn't make the trip home. He could have easily got home by 6, 7 o'clock if he'd been walking, if he'd gone on a horseback, much sooner. But he doesn't make that trip. Jesus has said he's healed. You know, It's a case of God, se- God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And that's what this man seems to have done. Incredible faith. And so we read verse 53 again. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. And then we're told verse 54, this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judah into Galilee. Now again, as I said, the miracles that John chooses, he chooses for very specific reasons. So miracle number two now, the healing of the nobleman's son. Jesus is sought at the place the empty stone water pots were filled with new wine. And that's where we all must seek him. The plea is to save a life that's dying. The cure is to simply trust Jesus' word. No gimmicks, just the word. The life of faith is evidence of belief. This man believed, and his faith was that he, he didn't even have to bother going home. He just believed and trusted Jesus. Okay, and beware that the simplicity will probably offend the thrill seekers. The bottom line is all we need, you know, once we're saved, once we've come to know the Lord, once we've come to that place of the, having our own lives as stone water pots changed, transformed, filled with this new wine, all we need is the word of God. That's all we need. We don't need all the other paraphernalia. you know. If God chooses to do miraculous things in our life, great. That's not essential. That's not the reason we believe. You know, our fire is not kindled from strange fire. Yeah, from other things. Those those additional things. They may be beneficial in our lives as Christians. God may choose to do those things, but our fire, our faith, is kindled from that burnt offering, from that sin offering. It's a fire that God lit. And if our fire is, is kindled from that, we will always be pleasing to God.